No credentials. Greatest album. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again on the Sound Logic Podcast. And today we're discussing album number 96 on Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 Greatest Albums list. This album is Automatic for the People by R.E.M. This feels like a recurring theme, but um, when I'm thinking about a guest, I often will go to Facebook and type in the title of the album and see which of my friends are the biggest fans. Um, Something sort of uh, um, sobering happened this time. Uh, When I searched for Automatic for the People, I realized that someone named Michael Iafrady uh, was a huge fan. Um, Sadly, um, way back in May of 2021, Um, Michael passed away. He had been uh, fighting cancer for uh, a number of years, and um, I was unable to reach out to him to ask him to be a guest. We had met a number of years ago at a conference for uh, campus ministry types. Um, He was there as a guest speaker to talk about faith and action, faith and protest, faith and, and engaging current issues. And I was there to talk about my work at Penn State University. Um, we, we sort of connected immediately, realized that we both had some similarities in our love for music, in um, sort of committing ourselves to a faith-based peace stance, and uh, just kind of like thinking outside the box. It was, it was really heartbreaking to hear that he had passed. Um, in the midst of doing that digging into uh, his love for R.E.M. and for this album in particular, I noticed a long thread um, with another friend of his. Uh, so Scott Williams is kind enough to join us here this evening. Scott is a, a much better friend of Michael than I ever was. Um, but again, someone who, who connected because of shared interests, because of shared love. And off mic, before we were beginning tonight, uh, I said just offhandedly, it seems very easy to become a friend of uh, Michael. It was like, it didn't take too many uh, sentences before you suddenly felt like this engaging connection. And um, reading his obituary again today, I was thinking, oh man, this must just have been the way that he moved about the world. Uh, Whoever wrote his obituary wrote, he was a father, partner, son, brother, friend, activist, liberation theologian, singer, songwriter, musician, magician, artist, vegetarian, voice impersonator, advocate, bibliophile, writer, teacher, student, seeker, and punk. And I think, uh, you know, we haven't really done this before, but sort of holding this episode in tribute to him tonight uh, seems like a really special and fitting way to begin a conversation about Automatic for the People. Um, That's long-winded, but I think important to say out loud and up front, Scott, we'd love to know a little bit more about who you are. We're kind of meeting in this podcast space for the first time. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for your willingness to hang out with two guys you've never met before and to reflect and remember uh, your friend um, and your mutual love and appreciation for this band and this album. Yeah, I'll do my best. It's, it's, It's really great to meet you guys. And, you know, there are people who knew him better than I did for sure. Um, but um, it was really easy to get to know him. The obituary that you read from was was read by his widow, Jocelyn. 
um, mm. who was his wife when he at the time that he died, and uh, and the mother of two of his three daughters, um, who he loved incredibly. And in fact, a couple of the most important times I spent with him was the times when his older his oldest daughter was participating in a thing in Morgantown called called Pop Shop, which was just mm. this really great program where you would get you know little kids together to basically do school of rock type of stuff like Jack Black school of rock <laughs> oh, cool. stuff. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And and his daughter was a superstar in it. His daughter Hazel was a superstar in it, which isn't surprising because he was this tremendous musician. I mean he 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 switched seamlessly between banjo and and bass and guitar. He was this amazing songwriter. And that list that Jocelyn wrote of his roles um is pretty exhaustive and, and incredibly impressive. I mean, what I knew about him was that he was a theologian that I respected. He was a writer that I respected. He was an advocate and an and activist that I respected. And he was a dad and he was a friend um, mm-hmm. that I respected. He was an altogether remarkable man. Hmm. The way that you described his battle with cancer um, made it seem like it took longer than it did. It, 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 it was so quick. Other people will know the timeline a little bit better than me, but um, I mean, he was diagnosed and within a year or to a year and a half, he, he was gone. We'd lost him. Um, it was it was really a horror show. In fact, um, I learned via social media that that he was gone and I thought it was a mistake. You know, I, you know, DM chat group made mention of 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 a serious decline in his um, condition and a couple days before he was fine we thought so I don't know that's a big mistake um, but then it turned out it was true so it was it, it, wow. you know he was a tremendously great light and also we lost him in such a precipitous way um, and others you know others were closer to him than I was and, and the loss was more acute for them but it was acute for me too um, so, yeah he was, he was he was a great dude and he loved R.E.M. <laughs> and he loved R.E.M. And he loved this album. Um, before did. we get too much into the music and your shared appreciation, my appreciation, um, I, I'm curious if you can tell us just a little bit about who you are, uh, Scott, for those who don't know you. Oh, sure. How do you introduce yourself these days? Sure. Uh, so my name is Scott Williams. I'm an assistant professor of uh, philosophy and religion at West Virginia Wesleyan College in Buchanan, West Virginia. Um, I've been teaching there since 2018. I've been teaching undergrads in philosophy and religion since 02. Um, so for a long time. Uh, uh, I'm also in the discernment process for, for priesthood in the Episcopal Church. So I'm perhaps on the path to becoming um, <laughs> clergy. My wife is a United Methodist pastor. We've been married for coming up on 26 years. Um and uh, we live in uh, North Central West Virginia, which is Central Appalachia. Got a couple of kids um, who are home with us now because school's out. One at Syracuse, mm-hmm. one at Duke. Um, my daughter Emma is a uh, is in the way that her old man is dedicated to Appalachia and advo- advocacy and justice advocacy within Appalachia. Um, she's having an internship right now at uh, Legal Aid of West Virginia. Wow. Um, my wife works for the ACLU. She's the faith-based organizer um, in the state of West Virginia for the ACLU. So advocacy is a big part um, of our lives or 
you know, my wife's life and, and my daughter's life. And, and, you know, Mikey inspired a lot of that. Hmm. Yeah, let's shift for just a minute. Um, to set the backdrop for this album. So Automatic for the People is the eighth studio album from R.E.M., released October 5th, 1992. Um, and Ben, you and I were not quite 10 years old, so maybe that explains why... <laughs> why we didn't know it when we were yeah. really when it came out <laughs> i've noticed this over the years about rem i'm not really i have never really done a deep dive into rem although i'm very familiar with much of their radio music um i think pretty much all their songs and pretty much this album are always credited to all four members of the band they're one of the, you see some bands who kind of go well this one was this guy this one was this guy this was these two yeah. but rem seems to always be uh Barry Buck, Mills and Stike, you know, like always. Yep. So I, I don't know. I just, I always, I like that. We all, I think when we're kids, we always like to think that our favorite bands are all best friends and <laughs> sometimes right. like the, the people in the band. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's, it's a job, it's work. It's, you know, people you do something with. Uh, but I really get the sense that these guys are, have a connection, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, okay. It charted number two in the US, uh, went to number four in Canada, uh, and number one in the UK. Uh, so pretty good, charted in 14 countries. And then we've heard this before, recharted again when it was re-released in 2000 and 2017, which would have been the 25th anniversary. Uh, sales, uh, this is a pretty big number, more than 18 million worldwide, four times platinum in the US, seven times platinum in the UK and Canada. Uh, that's, We've talked about a few albums over 20 and one or two over 30 million, but 18 million is quite a lot. Um, I, I'm just personally, I had no idea that this <laughs> album had been that as commercially, like I knew REM's great and this is a good album. But I'm sure it right. did well. 18 million, I was much more than I thought before kind of looking into it. So very, very commercially successful. Um, wow, just incredible. I'm still trying to get over it. I wonder if it helps that there have been a couple of re-releases, too. I, I know we always uh, talk about how things chart yeah. again. Um, you know, when you do these anniversary editions and bonus tracks and, and things like that, I'm sure that helps pad those stats a little bit. Uh, the hardcore fans have to have every single one that comes out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. each one. Right. If Neil Young doesn't stop releasing live stuff from the 70s, I'm going to go yeah. bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> okay a couple of little notes here uh on on the production of it um so the album that would become this automatic for the people had its origins in the mixing sessions of their previous album out of time uh which was at paisley park studios in december 1990 and they did demos for drive try not to breathe uh and night swimming so when they got to record this one, they had already written and recorded a lot of it already, which is really interesting. We've heard that before too, where you have this amazing session, you release an album and you're like, we still got great stuff here. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, now the album name, and I always wondered about this. The album name refers to the motto of an Athens, Georgia soul food eatery called Weaver D's delicious fine foods automatic for the people that's their motto of that, that <laughs> right. restaurant and i remember reading it reading an interview with stipe at the time 
where uh, he explained it more fully that the owner of the place was often behind the counter. And so if you ask for something, um, you know, an extra condiment, uh, a refill of soda, um, uh, a riff on what you had ordered that was maybe a little bit off menu, this guy's standard response was automatic for the people. Like, like <laughs> translation was, this is the service we provide. You know I mean? And oh, you don't have God. to think about it. It's automatic for the people. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know why they applied that to the album, but that, but that was the root. Like, this it's exactly awesome. what you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, while they're recording, the musicians themselves would often, uh, they switch instruments around. Uh, Buck would play mandolin, Mills would play piano or organ, and Barry would play bass. Um, Buck explained that writing without drums was productive for the band members, so they would do that without percussion. This is uh, an important little note because of the way that they created it. Uh, the musicians okay. went off and and essentially jammed on these various uh, out-of-their-comfort zones. Um, but that's how they wound up with the demos that they then handed to uh, Stipe to, to add lyrics to. Oh, so it was this interesting process of like separating them, themselves away from the guy who would eventually layer the vocals, sort oh, of tinker okay. with each other, push each other beyond what they're normally comfortable with. And then I think, it, I think they wound up with 30, uh, 30 tracks. And uh, and handed them back to to Stipe, and some of them I I think are are, are very uh, close to the original, like Night Swimming, which is just a piano with some strings. I think the piano is the piano from that demo that they recorded way back when that okay. he added some some vocals to, and uh, we'll get into John Paul Jones, but he added some <laughs> string arrangements, and uh, and that was it. <laughs> I that. I mean, it says the musicians would would go off and yeah because i'm in the house with a very serious vocal student when i read musicians i i think of a vocalist too so i didn't yeah. think that it would just be yeah, those three <laughs> it seems like like you, your comment about you want your your bands to be best friends it seems kind of cold to be like okay we're gonna go handle the music you just go take a break for a while and um, we'll hand it to you when it's done (laughs) and by the way by the way there's gonna be a zeppelin dude involved yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, exactly (laughs) which was not mo like one actually one of the one of the sort of um i I don't know serendipitous things about the timing of this is that i just finished reading the replacements biography called Hmm. trouble boys and the replacements in REM were, so they were really tight with one another, especially Peter Buck and the primary songwriter of the replacements, Paul Westerberg. And the replacements never made it. They were completely drunken, out of control, unable to get along with the label. Huh. Like they made amazing music, but they didn't make it. Hmm. REM, who hung out with them, was part of the same scene, did make it. Um, huh. And... <laughs> To, and, and and to find them then later hanging out with a Led Zeppelin guy yeah. is like you know how 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 are late eighties early nineties punk sensibility guys hanging out with John Paul Jones? It's beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's it's beautiful, but Booster Do is mad. You know, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk yeah. maybe talk a little That's bit great. more about JPJ a little later. That, that's actually a good lead up to the next thing. So the album thematically deals with themes of loss, 
morning. Um, they say inspired by that sense of turning 30, which <laughs> I guess sounds kind of funny to me now, but I get it, <laughs> um, according, to, according to Buck. And uh, the world that we'd been involved in had disappeared, the world of Husker Du and the replacements. All that had gone, as you guys had just mentioned. We were just in a different place, and that worked its way out musically and lyrically. Um, an excerpt from Pitchfork, reflecting on the album's 25th anniversary, which would have been 2017, we mentioned. Rather than attempt to compete in a world where teen angst was all the rage, R.E.M. set about crafting a rueful response to the onset of middle age. Remind us that life goes on after your slam dancing days are over. <laughs> um, and then he, he this writer comments as well, if Kurt Cobain had survived into middle age, he probably would have wound up making a record that sounded like this. <laughs> heavy speculation, but, <laughs> but uh, very, very interesting. And, and that reflection of Reasonable moving from that, probably. yeah, mm -hmm. using, moving from that youthful recklessness almost to something different, we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love to talk about the album cover, the artwork. Uh, something we talk about every album. If you're not familiar, just pause this and, and Google the artwork for Automatic for the People. Um, a black and white photograph of, of a strange object uh, with block capitals, Automatic for the People, right at the top, centered, and then REM, right in the middle, right on top of this image. Um, and I always, I'd never really investigated, but I've always wondered what this was. What is this thing? Well, it's... Uh, a star ornament that was part of the sign for the Sinbad Motel on Biscayne Boulevard in Miami, near Criteria Studios, where the bulk of the album was recorded. Apparently the motel is still there, but the star is not, since it was damaged in a hurricane. So, again, I have no other information on, you know, other than that it was near <laughs> the studio, if there's right, any other right. significance, because it doesn't I always wondered if it had something to do with the title or the content, but um, or it's the '90s and we just took pictures of weird stuff. <laughs> with REM, inscrutability was always part of the um, appeal in, in in their earlier albums, like you know, Murmur, their first album. The album cover is just. A, a scene that's completely covered in kudzu and the pictures <laughs> of the band members are barely legible um, and you can't hear any of the lyrics I mean like not, I mean you can't hear them you can't understand them because Murmur is a really good name for that album he's mumbling <laughs> you can't I mean what did he say I, I remember when they got popular and I was mad about that that they got popular um, because I didn't think people deserved them um, uh, you know, <laughs> suddenly his suddenly he became articulate, and some of his lyrics you could actually understand. And so, when <laughs> for the people came out, um, you know, you had to put work into it. You know, right? When automatic for the people came out, you're like, oh, good, an inscrutable, an inscrutable cover. That's that's what we're looking for, <laughs> and, and an inscrutable yeah. title. Uh, that's uh, you know, that's that's de rigueur for Ari. Wow. It almost has a, uh, like, uh, someone has taken a photograph of that star and then cut it out with scissors. Like, the the graphic arts layering at the time, maybe it's just the, the techniques that we had in the in the 90s, uh, makes it look 
uh, like a bad uh, copy paste job kind of <laughs> and the and the font is uh, pretty unremarkable but I think that does sort of lead to what you're saying that like kind of mystery or, or something vaguely something else uh, there about it when, and when I was reading about it this evening earlier this evening I was like oh I this is I mean it was the CD age so yeah, I can yeah. brag that apparently I have a first edition CD Ooh. And as somebody, right, right. As somebody who loves vinyl, like so, I have a roll. I have a copy of Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones "Sticky Fingers" with a zipper that actually works. Oh yeah, and, I mean, this is a treasure. Like this is like yeah. you know, this is a first edition. When somebody tells me that the REM automatic for the people first edition is constituted by a yellow background on the plastic. Like that's the, most, that's the most early '90s thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I don't that's know if cool. I have any of those. <laughs> A yellow background on the on like inside, like where the disc was sitting. And yeah, yeah. So usually CD cases, you know, the the inside oh, the well black. is black. Yep. This one yep. is translucent, and there's a yellow piece of paper behind it, ah. and that's how you know this is this is you know, bing, first edition. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a hilariously superficial understanding and plastic, yeah. literally plastic understanding of what constitutes first edition that's that it made me giggle. Yeah. So now is what why we're really here. Although the, all that stuff is awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> As we get into the music, uh, Ben, pretty standard, like almost, you know, I know it's CDs and tapes, so maybe not side A and side B, but almost exactly 24 minutes and 24 minutes, 15 seconds for the first six and the second six, uh, yeah. 48. So it's like that. We've talked about that kind of sweet spot, 40 to 45 minutes, like the max that an LP would hold. This really fits that <laughs> that model very well. Sure does, and, and I, even though this was CD era, it's funny that I don't know where this comes from. If it's from being pressed on vinyl, but Wikipedia has names for the sides, which which are really interesting. The drive oh. side is side one, and the ride side is side two. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, I, uh, do you know? Do you have any insight into that, Scott, as to why why those names are there? I tell my kids all the time. That, I mean, there really was nostalgia for this as, as CDs began to dominate um you, know, you guys said you were 10 when when yeah. this album came out i was 20 i was 23 actually um and i was telling my kids the other day that the system where you bought the vinyl album and then you recorded it on blank cassette you dubbed it onto a blank cassette and then you had an at-home version and a portable version that you would put in your cassette deck in your car <laughs> this system has never been improved upon as far as I know, they laugh. You know, I'm a thousand years old, right? I mean, they, they claim. But, but in those days, people did come. Like Tom Petty would come out with CDs, um, with sides designated, like side one, side two. But you had bought the CD. There were no sides. But in the artist's imagination, there were sides. Mm -hmm. um, still and creating in that way. Organizing mm -hmm. the sides of the album was part of the artistic expression. You put this on side one, you put that on side two. Um, and sometimes, you know, like if you were in a band, if you were into a band like Pink Floyd, like I was heavily, 
in those days. Like sometimes side two was just one song. You know, I mean, it really these <laughs> yeah. sides matter. And the I think the inertia of that bled into even up to 92 people. You had young people. So I was 23. You had young people were, who were still thinking in terms of sides, even though it was an antique idea at that point. Oh, that's a helpful reminder. Uh, just yeah. how young, young and old we are, I guess, that we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we, we remember that, that moment in time, too. Yeah, and I never thought about it that way, but, but everything that these artists had grown up listening to and then producing, and even, even at, at 23, Scott, but all the music you had listened to growing up, you know, it's it's vinyl, it's and it's the format that you were raised on. So it makes or perfect tapes. sense. Yeah. I, I think even sometimes we'll still see like disc one, disc two kind of thing. Um, and I think some artists still are searching for that structure in an age where you can release tracks whenever you want. Um, track by track, you got a good track, you can put it out. You can be successful yeah. with it. It doesn't have to be on an album. But people still want to release albums. I, I know Ben. I've I've talked about this before. You're gonna hate me, but my daughter is really into K-pop, and it's all about the the, the package, the presentation. We went into a K-pop store at the mall, and there's just these section. Each it's not like HMV. It's like each panel on the wall was a different artist, and it's all their albums. You don't buy the CD. You buy the package. She was like, we're going to go, uh, I'm going to take you up for your birthday. We'll get something. She was like, I want to get this album. I said, don't you have that one? She goes, well, Dad, I have the CD, but I don't have the whole thing. <laughs> okay, well, show, show me. Let's, yeah, let's get it. So we got it. And, you know, and there's 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 a photo book and there's photo cards and there's stickers and there's, and, and it's like, it's this big, you know, it's like the size of, it's eight and a half, <laughs> like that's. So there's still this desire for something tangible, something that you can hold you can put on the music yeah. and and open up a book and and read about the music or look at photos of the band and i see you know in that genre like the fans are 100 percent on board they don't care that it costs 10 20 more they want the whole thing you're just eating up all the content which is to me fascinating in in the internet age where if you want a picture of your favorite band yeah. Like you can have it at your fingertip, but there's still something different than holding it or putting it on your wall, <laughs> putting it in your in yeah, your phone case yeah. or whatever. Anyways, I digress, but I, I think there's a desire for that. This is a lot of what made vinyl attractive. You know, there was a poster of the band that would fold out of the of the vinyl yeah. gate. But sometimes, like I remember buying a Jethro Tull album that, that there was an actual newspaper that they had printed that would fall <laughs> out of it. And then even when CDs started, thank God this wasteful packaging is over for every time you buy a cd but the cd came in the, the cd like plastic case came in a larger cardboard thing that reproduced the album cover so all those original cds all the early cds were cd reproductions of albums that had already been made so you were yeah. buying right sergeant yeah. parker's only club's band only you owned it but now you're buying it on cd and mm. and it was like a 11 by 4 cardboard front and i can remember collecting these things cutting them out collecting them and putting them up in my room because <laughs> oh, okay. these artifacts were part of my identity like so when you walked right. into my dorm room at college you could see who i was into and it was part of who i was and this, these Hard physical artifacts sleep. were super important in expressing that and i think if i'm 
remembering correctly, it was because the stores at the time had all these really deep display cases. That yeah, vinyl, yeah. right? You couldn't put a CD in or it would get lost. So you had That's to like funny. put a That's cardboard really bottom on it. <laughs> or super easily shoplifted. That was the other worry. If oh, you if yeah. you just had a CD sized case, then kids would come in and they would it was so just much easier than, than an album. So you That's made them funny. as tall as an album, not as wide as an album, but as tall. And a lot of times it was it was possible to produce a lot of the album art on that template. And then you would save that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Scott, I have a hunch you'll be back as another another (laughs) guest because uh, you've already mentioned several uh, bands that have made Mike's eyebrows go up here. So uh, (laughs) we'll have to to bring you back at another time. Uh, (laughs) Tell us about how you got connected with R.E.M. Do you have early memories of them? Um, How close to this album in particular was it? It's crystal clear how I got into R.E.M. I mean, crystalline. Um, I was in junior high school. That's what we called it then. It wasn't middle school yet. <laughs> like 82. And and I don't know if you guys had this in your life, but I had a friend who was the curator of cool. Like I wasn't cool, but I really wanted to be cool. And I had this buddy who was the curator of cool, cool music. And most of his music was punk and metal. Like he introduced me to Nevermind the Bullocks, he introduced me to Motorhead. He introduced me to Iron Maiden. His mother was afraid we were Satanists. It was all in, <laughs> all in Central Appalachia. And I remember all of a sudden, and I, you know, countless sleepovers at one another's house, houses. And all of a sudden, I remember really clearly one day he had R.E.M.'s Murmur. And he was like, this is killer. You have to listen to this. And it was a complete departure for, from everything that we thought was cool. Like there couldn't be a song that was longer than two and a half minutes, then you were a sellout. Um, there couldn't be a song, <laughs> there couldn't be a song that involved more than three instruments, so then you were a sellout. I mean, these were all our eighth grade judgments that were, you know, we were dedicated to them. Suddenly we have this jingly, jangly, melodic, mumbling, but clearly intensely cool, um, sound and we were just enthralled with it. I remember just falling in love with it immediately and every time an album came out this lasted me from the time I was in middle school until I was in college. I graduated from high school in 1987, the year that Document came out. So that was their fifth album and it was the first album that they scored a hit and I was furious. I was for the first time on a <laughs> I was the, for the first time I was on a college campus um, with, with you know, twenty five thousand of my best friends, and uh, and all of a sudden, from my seventeen slash eighteen year old point of view, people who did not deserve them and hadn't earned them were into REM. Like your access, <laughs> my thing is too easy. Like I earned them. I listened. I listened to you know, Fables of the Reconstruction. I listened to Life's Rich Pageant. By the way, which is my and Mikey's favorite R.E.M. album is Life's Rich. Oh, Pageant. interesting. But but anyway, I mean, this was in, it was supposed to be, you, 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 everybody's had this experience where there's a thing that you're into that others aren't into, it's not popular. Suddenly it becomes popular, you resent the popularity. By the time Automatic for the People came around, those of us who had that initial attitude had A, matured a little bit, <laughs> and, and, and B, gotten used to it, that they were popular. But the great thing about Automatic for the People 
and the the stuff that you were talking about like really does name a good bit of it is that it has a foot in both the worlds it has a foot in those older more clandestine um more hip cool albums but it's beginning to transition into like tonight when i was listening to it uh you know before i started talking to you guys i was just struck by how earnest it is now, the least cool thing in the world when you're when you're 20 i mean there's mm-hmm. nothing less cool than being earnest like <laughs> right but when you get to be the age those fellows were you start thinking you know what some things are true and worth saying even if you just have to say them without gatekeepers mm-hmm. without um, without saying you can only understand us if you're cool it becomes more important to say hey everybody hurts it becomes more important to say don't throw your hand um, it becomes more important to say sweetness follows you know, I mean, some of the lyrics on that album, as I was listening to it this evening, I was like, there's some stuff here that could be like on a live, laugh, love nightmare. Like, <laughs> right? But in 1992, this was a thing that, you know, I mean, at a certain point, you reach an age where you have to say, you know, some stuff's true, even if it could appear on that poster. So, yeah, that was my that was my journey. It was, you know, I thought being into R.E.M. was my badge of hipness. And then when the WVU cheerleaders were also, you know, singing stand in the place where you live, I was like, oh, we have to give up this whole thing. That's <laughs> uh, awesome. But, but automatic for the people was had a foot in, in, in those old days that I loved so much that were so compelling. It's yeah. so beautiful. And also in this maturity and new earnestness that was really moving. Hmm. I love that. Did 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 you stick with it? Was uh, was this a band that you continued to uh, buy every album that came out? Um, I I always go back to REM. I don't go back to any album after Automatic for the People. Oh, wow. interesting. I, I, I lost track of them for whatever reasons. I mean, I, I don't know what to point to. But I lost track of them after Automatic for the People. I, I bought Monster. As soon as it came out, I bought Monster and and kind of listened to it one time and tried to like it. This is also this is also not only about them growing up, but about me growing up. Yeah. Like by that time, I was 25 years old. I was thinking about how to get into graduate school. I wasn't only thinking about how to be cool and make sure I was into the most cool music on the earth. And, you know, one time through a CD, I was like, you know, okay, I set it aside. (laughs) Um, And I never kind of drifted back to them. Um, And and so I'm basically unfamiliar with all their music after Automatic for the People, which is strange given how important all of their music, including Automatic for the People, is to me still. Mm -hmm. Um, I still love it. And, And... not just for nostalgic reasons. Some of it's nostalgic. I can't listen to Reckoning, um, their second album, without being taken back to college parties. You know, I mean, that, that was the soundtrack of every college party, it seemed, them and the Smiths. <laughs> um, uh, but it's not just nostalgia. It's also, you know, continuing to, continuing to relate to them and, and, and see the worth of it. But at a certain yeah. point, I just closed, moved on to other things. Yeah. But it wasn't because they got popular. I got used to that by the time this album came out. Yeah. 
Mike, I was trying to figure out my origin story, and uh, in the shared document that we have, I, I sort of ramble on about maybe it was in college, but this afternoon it dawned on me. Um, I think that we went and saw the Jim Carrey movie Man on the Moon together. I thought about that too. REM's Man on the Moon plays, I think, a couple times throughout the movie. Yeah, and I yeah. think that was a crystallization point for me where I realized I liked R.E.M. enough that if I ever figured out what album that song was on, I'd pick it up. And I think that was what led me to, you know, randomly flipping through, finding that track on this album, pulling it out and and diving in. Um, coincidentally, getting to college for me made me realize that some other friends that I was making also loved that song and that album. And I think it just sort of snowballed from there. Uh, I, I think I went uh, a little bit more scattershot than you, Scott. Sort of realizing I love this album made me go in both directions and just sort of willy-nilly pick up REM albums. I don't think ever going back as far as the one that uh, you and Michael hold most uh, highly, and maybe I need to do that now, um, but, but never really felt as, as much joy in the others when I, I listened to them and I, I don't think I I did pull off uh, Automatic for the People this week and put it in my CD player um, it's uh, a CD that I loved enough to take on cross-cultural to South Africa and coincidentally that CD which was in a CD case got stolen when I was mugged and so I have a blank CD that I scribbled on original copy stolen in South Africa <laughs> fall of <laughs> 2004, whatever it was, 2003, and uh, to sort of ease my uh, copyright panic at the time, I guess. But um, <laughs> it was it was dear enough to me to drag along on a on a, a semester abroad uh, with my discman. So yeah, I was surprised, Mike, that this is brand new to you. Is that right? That you would obviously know a few of the singles, but not an album that you ever got into. I've never. Uh, I have. Um... I have out of time and I got to be honest with you guys. I don't think I've listened to it more than twice and I'm not sure what it is. I have nothing against REM at all. Like I think, (laughs) I think they're great for some reason. It's one of those bands and there are many that I've never been had this urge or been compelled to go and go, I'm going to listen to a bunch of albums or I'm going to, I just never have. I've heard their stuff on the radio. I love it when it comes on. Like I said, got no problem with them. I've just never taken the time. So I've never listened to this album. That being said, I knew, you know, obviously the singles, but even the one, like, is Drive a single? Um, we didn't talk about the singles. Usually we do. Like, there was a lot of songs. I was like, oh, I'm, and even the ones I didn't know all sounded very familiar. Hmm. And that was the theme for me as I listened to this music. I was like, this sounds, I mean, this is in my wheelhouse for like the genre that I like and the type of music that I like, the type of music I grew up with. Um, and, you know, albums like Monster and, and the, the few that came after, when I was ingesting music, you know, much music, which is Canadian MTV, ingesting like 10 hours of that a day <laughs> as, a, as a very solitary grade nine and grade 10. Um, that's when those albums were out, you know, those yeah. those late 90s, uh, 96, 98. I think they had some albums 
So I was more familiar with that stuff than their stuff in the early 90s. Um, when I was listening Ben to Man in the Moon, I had that same thought. I thought, you know, I was thinking about the movie, you know, they talk about Andy Kaufman. So, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that in the theater. And also I was like, did I see that with Ben? Did we see that together? <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. we did. And I'm pretty confident we did. I mean, I was a huge, I mean, the 90s, Jim Carrey was like, he was the best. You know, I, I was a perfect age for everything he was doing, his comedy. His <laughs> and comedy. He was Canadian. And Canadian, his comedy. <laughs> and then, of course, he starts doing these, you know, he does the Truman Show and he does he does uh, Man on the Moon, which are like still comedic, but also very serious as well. So Plus, we were venerating he... Andy Kaufman in those days. Like, yeah. like <laughs> there, was something, there was something about comedy in those days that we were like, oh, we were learning to honor these comedy great. Was, there was something almost sacred about Andy Kaufman and that flick yes. and Jim Carrey's honoring of him mm -hmm. that we were all supposed to take very seriously at that particular cultural moment. Yeah, <laughs> I, no, I, I totally agree. And I remember sitting in it, Ben, and I don't know if it was just you and I or if my dad was there or someone was there kind of thinking... Uh, this isn't exactly the movie I thought it would be. No. <laughs> like, like you know, thinking that it might just be a comedy. I didn't really know much about Andy Kaufman right, at that time. Right. I knew he was in a show called Taxi that was like yeah. on reruns that my parents watched, um, <laughs> or and my like older aunts and uncles. Like that's I knew. So uh, when I hear Man on the Moon, I think about that movie almost every time. And now, yeah, you were there. Um, but but again, the theme was was very familiar sound. Even the melodies, you know, a song is on the radio, and a part of it is stored in your brain somewhere. I felt like that was <laughs> happening. I was hearing a song that I didn't think I recognized. Going, boy, this is familiar. So that kept happening as I went through this whole album, and yeah. it was very uh, a very comfortable spot sonically for me. Um, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. I listened to it probably three or four times back to back today while I was at work. Just like, yeah, I'm just going to keep going. Just to, just going to keep replaying this. And it was, yeah, very, very, very comforting. It's a, it's also a band that we would have grown up with, but a band that all members are still around, but not playing together anymore, which right. is yeah. kind of an interesting piece of this too. Most of the bands that are not together anymore especially on this list are broke up because of death some kind of trauma some kind of bad falling out something like that and uh that's not the case with these guys <laughs> well you know the barry bucknell stipe thing that you referred to earlier ben like way back to the beginning where they that that was that was part of their politics like mm -hmm. you know, that you knew from the beginning that this is radically egalitarian not only are we sharing credit four ways equally, but we're putting our names in alphabetical order. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, clearly there's a division yeah. of labor when somebody's writing a song. I mean, it's obviously ludicrous to say that four guys equally wrote the song. That's right. That's not a thing. But they were no. committed to it in a way that was really inspiring to me when I was that age. I was like, yeah. look, we're committed to one another in a way that says we're going to divide the credit equally. Sometimes that will be unjust to you sometimes that will be unjust to me but we're together and we're bearing this burden together we're reaping the reward the rewards together and that's mm -hmm. where we are and barry buck mill stipe um 
you know, that became really important to me in terms of my identity. Hmm. Um, and, and like being into this band that did that um, yeah. uh, was always really cool to me. Scott, uh, what is it about this album in particular that, that peaked this band for you, do you think? Man, I was listening to Night Swimming this evening before we started talking, and I just... I mean, what do you do with art like that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Night Swimming is my clear favorite on this album. It's wow. hard for me to say that it's my favorite thing that R.E.M. ever did. That That's that's different, but it's it's it's, it's got to be in the conversation as much as I love them. Sometimes I don't even know what it means that, that the white yeah. tight forever drum cannot describe Night Swimming. Um, <laughs> I, but I know that it's moving to me. And, you know, my mom... Uh, was uh, an English teacher at our local high school and she was the yearbook advisor. Um, and in her English class, she wanted an example of um, imagist poetry. And of course, oh. imagist poetry is where you just create an image, you're not trying to make a point, you're just trying to create an emotional response to the image that you've depicted. Um, and I gave her um, uh, uh, not night swimming, but um, you are the everything which is on a previous R.E.M. album. I was like, the, You Are the Everything is an example of imagist poetry from pop culture that your kids will relate to. And it was really effective. And then when Automatic for the People came out, I was like, oh my God, they've, they've, they've topped it in terms of, <laughs> in, 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 in those terms. It, it creates this massive emotional response yeah. that's both nostalgia and longing and and the dissatisfactions of nostalgia, you know, like nostalgia is really dangerous. And one of the things that's great about REM and Automatic for the People um, is their appreciation for the power of nostalgia, but their awareness of how dangerous it is. I mean, you can't live mm. there. It doesn't make you happy. And so Night Swimming does both of these things. Yeah, It throws you back to a time when you were young and you went skinny dipping. And it also assures you that throwing yourself back there won't won't resolve whatever you're going through right now. And yet also that it's beautiful to be a human being and to have these kinds of experiences. I mean, it's just click. Um, yeah. An yeah. awesome piece yeah. of art. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. Um, oh, what a beautiful song. What a gorgeous piece. Yeah. And, and John beautiful. Paul Jones, the orchestration, like yeah. it, it, John Paul Jones, the you know, like oh, here's why we have Led Zeppelin guy. Like I love Led Zeppelin, <laughs> I love Led Zeppelin, right? But I don't necessarily need Led Zeppelin in my REM albums. Right. Um, but I was like, oh, here's why Led Zeppelin guy is here. That orchestration at the end, that 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 fades it out. I mean, that's good goodness. You know, you have to be sold not to be moved by this. Yeah, uh, John Paul Jones, like, you know, you listen to uh, um, All of My Love, you know, and on all these orchestrations and so many times, even when they did their their big show at the O2 Arena, I mean, he was he plays organ as much as he plays bass in, in those shows. So anyways, hmm. that's don't want to get sidetracked again. It's not difficult for me to do that. <laughs> But, you know, I'm pining for the moon. 
But what if there were two side by side in orbit around the fairer sun? I mean, Stipe is an underrated, <laughs> you know, because he spent so many years mumbling and being inarticulate, he's an underrated lyricist. That, that, yeah. the, the, just the description of the sun is fairer than the moon. And what if there were two? And, yeah. And he, he I mean, it, uh, well, I haven't I haven't done this in a while. Is pull out a, a CD insert to see what the lyrics actually read. I was disappointed to learn this week that that they're not present in the the lyric book for Automatic for the People. It's a a really uh, '90s looking black and white spread of the band and a bunch of like random too cool for you poses, and no lyrics are included at all. Um, yeah, where are you? It be four guys at the beach. Like you're yeah. like, why are you sending your vacation pictures? Because it's REM. It's like, oh, this must be meaningful. No, no, lyrics. You know, REM albums don't have lyrics. Like on document, I forget whether it was document or out of time. For the first time in all their albums, suddenly there was a lyric sheet. And I remember reading oh, wow. the role review of that album. They were like, can you believe it? There was a lyric sheet in this album because the inscrutability of, of Stipe's lyrics were part of the point. Like, listen to Radio Free. You have no idea what he's saying. Right. Well, and uh, side, I think it's Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight uh, has continued to show up near the top of lists of the most misunderstood lyrics of all time. That um, that chorus that repeats over and over and over and over again is is not a chorus that most people know what it's saying, which is <laughs> which is quite quite wonderful. Uh, I think the line is actually. Call me when you try to wake her up. Said way right. too fast, and right. people think it's "Call me Jamaica" or, or something something along those lines. Um, so, but yeah, that it struck me when you said, "I don't even know what he's saying," and I'm still pulled in by it. My, Mike and I have said many times we're not lyrics first kind of people. But I, I am. Feel, I feel so wrapped up in this music, even though I often don't know what he's saying and it makes me want to know what he's saying too there's like that duality there too you say you are lyrics first uh, i am lyrics first i was always lyrics first like before i ran into rem i I would buy like i would buy a a pink floyd album and i would sit listening next to the turntable reading every roger waters (laughs) lyric because i wanted to i was memorizing them this was at the heart of it and so and so then you would get to uh you know then you would get to and you're like what? <laughs> like the music was so compelling and, and like green grow it was worse earlier like green grow the rushes ho which is retrospectively on this is on fables of the reconstruction i know that that's about guatemala and you know like american colonialism in central america i know that now but at the time <laughs> like this was something you had to figure out I hate to bang on about it, but when I was at West Virginia University, I was sweet mates with a guy who had been given a frat hazing assignment. And the assignment was this. You could either you could either write down accurately the lyrics to Radio Free Europe by REM, <laughs> or you could bring an eight bag of marijuana to the next frat <laughs> park. But you had a surmount one of those two hurdles and of course everybody bought dope like because there's no way you can <laughs> Europe is about. I mean, that's hilarious that was michael stipe trademark and so yeah i mean what was shocking was everybody hurts 
where he was saying, if the day is long, like you could understand what he was saying. What he was saying was so earnest and compassionate. And um, that was the weird thing about Automatic for the People. Hmm. Not the incomprehensible shit. Hell, that was that was De Rigueur. But it was the earnest, hey, think about, look, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all headed towards death. Life is dark. So it wasn't like a shiny, happy album. Yeah, yeah. He didn't want to say things to you in the midst of the darkness. Like, hmm. um, don't throw your hand. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, hold on. Yeah. These were weird messages to come directly from Michael Stipe. And they told you that the fellas were getting older and wiser and even more interesting. Hmm. I love that. So Mikey met Peter Buck. Oh, wow. Um, one time. It was just, this was really important to him. And uh, it was like a thing where you line up at a you know, record store or something and mm. you know, Peter Buck signs your shit. <laughs> and uh, uh, Mikey walked up to him and handed him the thing he wanted him to sign. And he said this was really a, this was a really Mikey thing. Um, he said, uh, he said, I, I want to thank you, man. Um, I learned to play guitar on your songs. And Peter Buck said back to him, so did I, man. God bless you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's That's awesome. awesome. And and Mikey, Mikey, you know, Mikey took heart in that. That like, you know, how bad, you know, like Mikey was a good guitar player. But I mean, you never think you're, I mean, unless you're Eddie Van Halen. You, you don't, you don't right. think you're a good guitar player, but Mikey took heart from <laughs> the fact that, that Peter Buck had also was learning as he went. And Buck was really kind to him. I had forgotten just how much I love this album. And so I'm so glad that I don't have to pick a favorite track. Uh, usually <laughs> we ask our guests to, to pick uh, two tracks for our Spotify playlist, our sound logic favorites. Um, Scott, uh, would you take the pleasure tonight of uh, of picking two two songs for that ongoing uh, playlist? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know. I already said I already talked a good bit about night swimming, and there's no question, night swimming is my favorite. The other one is try not to breathe, um, hmm. and um, apparently, I just learned this today that this was about the death of Stipe's grandmother Um, but but I think it still tracks I mean when I was you know this is about a person who's trying to make themselves small and try to get out of the way um, and yet at the same time are demanding um, that you see their existence as significance as significant like um, I will try not to breathe um, but I have experienced things that you've never experienced and I want you to remember that um, as I get out of the way. So it's at one and the same time, this tremendous humility um, and recognition of mortality um, and also an insistence that my existence here has been significant and you're going to remember it. Um, it's really beautiful. Uh, so those are the two for me that really do it. I love that. I love that. 
I, I wanted to just before we move in the end I, I wanted to add one more thing about the music boy was I delighted to hear an oboe solo yeah. uh, on, <laughs> I, I, I was listening and I heard and I was like what is that that's not a violin that's an oboe oh my goodness you know and and I mean it's is that nice swimming Mike I think it's night swimming, and and I yeah, think yeah, yeah. I think she plays on several tracks, but I think the solo is night swimming. Beautiful, I, I love the sound of an oboe. It's just it's a little softer than the clarinet, and I'm I'm kind of a Ben knows this. I'm kind of a I was a band nerd, and I'm into jazz. Yeah. And, I mean, but you don't hear the oboe like it's not. You know, you think of jazz and big band. You've got uh, Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman and the clarinet and all that stuff, and. Um, you don't hear oboe. It's such a beautiful sound and, and fits so perfectly on that tune, which, as we mentioned, is just gorgeous. And yep. I was like, that is one of the, except for maybe slide whistle, that's one of the last instruments I expected to hear on an REM. <laughs> you know, you, you had um, the Stones and the Beatles do French horn solos. We've heard that. This was just really, really nice. So anyways, mm-hmm. that was just another little nugget that I was like, wow, this is cool. Somebody needs to cross the bassoon frontier. Then we'll really be getting <laughs> A bassoon so- and bass clarinet uh, battle. <laughs> Something I found myself uh, thinking this week as I was digging into this album a bit more was how much their sound is like the Tragically Hip and wondered why it was that the Tragically Hip stayed so north of the border and R.E.M. has an album with 18 million uh, copies sold. It's so interesting to me that the parallels between those two and uh, the different trajectories of their their respective careers. Ben, if you don't mind, I have a, I have a story about that. I have a story about that exact thing. I can't believe you said that. Oh, okay. please, please, please. So when I was in seminary slash grad school, I had this good buddy who was from Winnipeg. Um, and he was always wearing a tragically hip shirt. And and I was like, he was my age. I was like, who's that? He was like, they're huge. And, and I was like, okay. So, but I, you know, I trusted his musical taste and his taste and all kinds of other things too. And one time the hip came to Raleigh. Um, and so me and my buddy Chris um, from Winnipeg and our wives, we went to see, and it was in a bar. It was like in a club. And he said to me, he said, if we were in Canada, this would be an arena. Like, yeah. <laughs> never. And so, of course, he was over the moon getting to, getting to be, you know, right that close to the hip. Um, yeah. And, and he said the exact thing you just said, Ben. He, he said, this is our stipe. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, he exactly That's right the only reason I freaked out when you started into that. Because I had, I had another, I had my buddy from Winnipeg say exactly the same narration. Yeah. yeah. And it was hard. Huh. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I saw uh, another Canadian band that never made it anywhere in, in the side of the border. Uh, Sloan, I saw them at the 930 club in dc and i think there was maybe 20 of us there and if i had to do a poll i bet most of us were canadian and so everyone there was singing along but it was like a mostly empty venue and i just thought like this is so strange (laughs) yeah 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 Uh, it was great the show was great but it could have fit in the garage (laughs) that's awesome okay so something that we like to ask uh along this journey is 
how has something aged? What has aged well? What is not? Um, and I'm curious what you guys think about this album. I, I found myself thinking similarly to a couple of the artists that we've talked about recently. Um, Stipe's voice is pretty unique. I don't think he ever really sounded like his peers when he was making music in real time. So in some ways, <laughs> they were always kind of outside the norm. And, and Scott, your comments about kind of being disappointed when they broke through and became huge, uh, not something you were expecting, kind of makes me wonder, uh, you know, what that means for an aging process, uh, a band that was cool to be to be weird, uh, maybe, maybe doesn't want to age well. There's also some, some cultural touchstones and, and references here of things from the 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, that wind their way into his lyrics that I think like, whew, my kids have no context for those. I, I struggle with them and I'm, uh, you know, I was born uh, a decade before this album came out. Uh, so I wonder if sometimes if the, the lyrical content is the thing here that has aged uh, the worst. Uh, but he's also got authenticity and darkness and vulnerability in here that I think has just aged like a fine wine. Like it's just gotten better that the coming of age kind of themes that are on this album. Uh, so I'm, I'm torn here. I'm curious what the two of you have to say about uh, this question. There's something about this and I am struggling to put my finger on it. Maybe I don't know. One of you guys can help me. That sounds like early nineties rock. And I can't, I, I feel like I struggled to describe it. I don't know if it's the organ, if it's the just the the very consistent snare on the two and four. Uh, I don't know, um, but it just sounds like that era of rock. And I know this sounds really obvious, but if in terms of it aging, we move through different, you know, different eras different generations of music and how music sounds and that's fine and that's normal so i don't say that to say that it's negative mm -hmm. because i think this type of rock and roll if you will or alt rock or whatever we want to call this exactly um i think this still holds up as a as a baseline of just really solid music i'll say just music i could say rock music be more specific but just it is solid music it's good songwriting it's excellent execution there's there's arrangements and orchestrations here which are fantastic uh, there's all these amazing things so i think it's aged very very well it, there's nothing sometimes you listen to something you go oh that is so 80s or so 90s or oh man the way they sing this is so 1977 but we say it in a bad way I don't feel like mm -hmm. I need to say that for any of this. It's, mm. you know, would a young person say, oh, dad, this is old person music? Yeah, maybe, but it doesn't bug me. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. So I, I think it's, I think it's aged very, very well. Um, even though we can tell we have a pretty good sense of when it's from. And these songs like, okay, everybody hurts. I feel like every year there's a movie that has that or a TV show that has this. Like everybody knows that song. Like mm -hmm. my kids probably know that song. Um, so it's, it's, there's something very timeless about this. You're right, Ben, Michael Sype. We've talked about this very recently. When you have someone who's so unique, this yeah. idea of has it aged well or not, like it doesn't even matter. Cause they, it's like they live outside of, it's an alien. Of a, yeah. Of, yeah. Out of a time period, a guy, you know, like a David Bowie or, or different yeah. people we've talked about, you know, Jimi Hendrix on guitar, for example, like 
Bruce doesn't Springsteen. matter. He, Bruce he, they, he they sounded just, old even when he was young. <laughs> <laughs> they live, they live within their own thing. It's like when this music yeah. came out, it was unique. Yeah. So it's still, so this is like, again, it's main, as you talked about, they had evolved enough that it's mainstream enough that it was really widely accepted, um, but unique enough that it's still REM. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think I really have any in this regard much <laughs> negative to say about it at all in terms of the aging, the aging, the, the aforementioned aging process. <laughs> what yeah, do you think, exactly. Scott? Well, I, I think, I think two things. Um, a lot of times that what animates Stipe is, ha, is rooted in cold war politics, American imperialism. Okay. Like, that, that's, and, and, that can feel bygone. Like even on automatic for the people, I forget, I can't remember what song. Um, Oh, ignore land. Um, Ignore land is animated by a set of politics that died in 19, not really, but I mean the specifics of it died in 1989. And so that can feel, that can feel outdated, but I don't think it really, the themes aren't outdated. I mean, you know, imperialism, colonialism, unfortunately these things never go out of style. Um, uh, And, 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 and so uh, it, it still feels really relevant to me. I will say this. So I'm not a musicologist. I can't analyze it the way that you did, Mike, which was really interesting. Um, <laughs> but, but I will say this. Um, obviously, with my kids, my kids are 21 and 19, and I want them to be slavishly obedient to all of the music that I was into. Um, because, <laughs> you know, I'm selfish in that way. And um, I, the, I, I don't know that, that they have any appreciation for REM in particular beyond the big ones that might, you know, like everybody hurts. Like I'm sure they can recognize everybody hurts. Um, and they can recognize things that I've played around them. The word Smith's, hardly came out of my mouth and they knew everything. I mean, like mm-hmm. the Smiths are really important to them and have held up. And I think it's music. I think it's the music. The Smiths have held up for them in a way that REM didn't. And I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I, Interesting. I, I, I have no idea why the REM was way more important to me when I was young, when both of them were, you know, relevant. REM was made way more important to me than the Smiths were, although I love the Smiths. But now, if the if the question is, are are people in the next generation still listening to this music? I'm not sure that REM is having the staying power that some other bands I could think of have. And, and the Smiths are just an example. Uh, mm. Yeah. So I like that's that. my two but I love them. I'll never get over loving them. Those, the, the, those, those first five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, the first eight REM albums, <laughs> just like the first eight Springsteen albums. You know, they might save uh, the world. Well, uh, the next question that we usually ask is: Was this list position sound logic? Uh, hence the name of this podcast. And we've been struggling with this for ninety-six albums here now, um, Scott. We don't expect you to be as invested in this ranking as we are having gone through the 95 that came before, but how does this feel to you to have REM's first showing on this list here in the top 100? Um, Does it seem like it should be higher, lower? Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts. 
yeah, I, I would have to see the whole list. Like, <laughs> um, it, uh, it, it's not, it is not my favorite. It is not my favorite REM album. So mm-hmm. that, that's one thing I can say that there, I can think yeah. of two REM albums at least that I would put higher than it. But yeah. I mean, that then we're into super granular subjective stuff. So, that's all I got. I'll let you guys okay. take care of that. You you say that as if this list isn't. <laughs> well, right, right, no, no. Of course, it's all subjective, but like this is a granularity of subjectivity. Like, like which RB, REM album should be ninety five? Yeah. Like, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. I was listening to this album and then doing the research, thinking, I, I think this should be higher. I think this should be ranked way higher and thinking about the impact of, you know, like I said, a song like everybody hurts, um, you know, and, and the other hits, the success of it, the impact of, you know, so much music in the nineties, I'd say for the next five years, that sounds a lot like this, um, which comes from not just this album, but the albums, you know, out of time, I, I probably, you know, way more about the band, but I wouldn't go, too back too much further but this band and this album in particular has made a huge mark on 90s rock music and beyond um mm-hmm. i i think i think it should be quite a lot and 18 million copies I and mean, come on man like yeah. that's i i know that's not the only thing when we consider greatness but i think it's something to consider and that's uh that's uh that's a lot of sales so i i could see this up much closer to 50 I think that would be appropriate. Um, REM is certainly a, a heavyweight in the in the rock scene in the 80s and 90s. Certainly in the 90s, as they achieved even more success, more notoriety, more popularity. Uh, yeah, I I would have it higher, straight up. I think that's the correct answer. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Thank you. Uh, but I I know that there's some some strong <laughs> some strong bias in me in saying that like i love this one so much i remember feeling some similar thoughts when we got to joshua tree like how how is this not higher well it's because i'm not the only one voting here and uh and there's probably a reason that it's uh it continues to be uh at this at this sort of slot um it's uh has actually risen. It used to be 249 and, uh, and is all the way up here to 96. So I don't know if it's the, we've talked about how much uh, a list that came out in the pandemic has valued transparency, authenticity, being real. And this album certainly does that. So I don't know, maybe, maybe more people will gravitate to it because of those, those things. And certainly it's got a lot of fans given how many, um, album albums it's sold. I, I would like to see it higher, but, uh, stylistically alternative rock from the nineties isn't necessarily something that's like a cultural touchstone, uh, anymore in the same way that it was, uh, for our teenage years. So maybe I understand why it's just sneaked into the top hundred, but I'd love to see it a little higher. Well, these guys, I mean, this was like right before, you know, mother love bone and Pearl jam and all that stuff was set to pop. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it was, it wasn't, you know, everybody's nostalgic for 
the time when they were in their early 20s and the music of that time. But it was yeah. really interesting. I mean, um, uh, you know, yeah. like I said, the the category 90s alt rock like almost bugs me because I don't e- I don't even know. Is, is that Nine Inch Nails and REM? Because that seems strange. Like that they would right. be even yeah. more. Yeah. yeah. Like so, yeah. It, it's yeah. it's so hard to get. Yeah. Count, what did I? Counting who Crows. I, was, by the way, tour, love. Counting <laughs> Crows was touring this summer with Dashboard Confessional, and I thought that doesn't make any sense. Like in my head, those two don't go together, and yet I'm sure there's people our age who are nostalgic for both of those bands at the same time. And so, sure, put them on the same bill. And <laughs> but yeah, they yeah, it's interesting. We talked about other uh, other placement for this album. Yeah. Um, it was uh, 247 with the original 2003 list and 249. It fell two spots for the for the 2012 list and then jumps all the way up to 96 spot here. Um, there's one more album from REM on this list, and we won't take too long to get there. Another, uh, another uh, 70 spots here or so to get to 165, uh, where they have 1983's Murmur. And then... Um, the 1987 album document had been on the first two iterations of the list and then the, the coffee table book as well, but has fallen off. So if we ever make it through this list of 500, Mike, we'll go back and, and uh, visit document uh, when we get to that. So um, another decade or so, another day, another decade or so. Uh, yeah. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time for, for honoring Michael in this way and for sharing your obvious love for for music in general but also specifically for uh, rem in this album it's been a real pleasure to get to know you a little bit and hopefully our paths will continue to cross here as we continue so. forward yeah you're yeah. welcome thank you for asking me to come on i love i love rem i loved mikey very much um yeah. mikey has music out there um under m i afraid and and the priesthood he's got several albums so if people want to check those out, that, that yeah. will, that will, that'd be great too, because he was a tremendous musician and he loved REM. So of course, I hope I run into you guys again. And yeah. you know, thanks again for having me on. Oh, it's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you for for sharing those things, sharing your time, Scott. And of course, we yeah hope to hope. I'm sure our paths are will cross again at some point. Yeah. Okay, great. That'd be great. Definitely. All right, uh, Ben. Why don't you tell us what we have coming up next week before we sign off here? Yeah, uh, we sure have been pivoting a lot in terms of the genres in this uh, block of 10 albums. We keep saying that at the end of each episode. Uh, We pivot from uh, R.E.M. to uh, number 97, which is Master of Puppets by Metallica, going from the 90s to (laughs) 80s metal. So um, should be a fun journey. Yeah, (laughs) Um, excited to talk to again, shift again. And um, once again, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Scott, for the conversation. Thank you uh, for listening to this. Until next time, we hope you continue to be well. We hope you take care of yourselves and those around you. And we certainly hope you'll join us again right here on the SoundLogic Podcast. Thanks, everyone. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.